This is Mark 1, 9 through 13. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. At once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals and angels attended him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Let's uh, say a quick prayer. Father, let some word that is yours be heard. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Uh, So as Chris mentioned, my name is Chris. (laughs) Last name is Travis, so I have two first names. You can call me Travis if that's easier for you. And I'm here with my wife, Lindsay, and my two older boys, Rowan and Leo, and our our third, Bo. He's going to turn four this month. He's in Kid City right now. Uh, A little bit about me. Lindsay and I have been married for 18 years now, and uh, I don't know. I think we're going to keep doing it uh, for a little while longer. Um, When I told Lindsay that I was going to tell you guys that we had been married for 18 years, she was like, be sure to also mention that I was five years old when we got married. And then I was like, you want me to introduce myself to this church by telling them that I married a five-year-old? So marriage is going well. Um... As Chris mentioned, uh, I, I planted a church with Orch- Orchard Group. I helped. I was on a team to plant a church in New York City about a decade ago now. So that's the connection. If you're sitting there like, why is this guy that's been coming here for a few months speaking at this church now? City Church is not that desperate. They're not just like randomly grabbing people out of the pews and putting them up here. Um, my roots are pretty deep with Orchard Group. And since we finished our work there um, in full-time ministry there, um, we've helped other Orchard Group plants um, Uh, Renaissance Church in Harlem, and we grew up in Cincinnati, so this was kind of coming home. Our parents are here um, after being in New York for about 13 years, Um, and we're very, very glad to be back, and I'm very grateful to have found this church. I have to say that the things that Chris mentioned beforehand, that has been our experience. We do feel like God is moving here, and I've really appreciated the, the, the vibe. You guys are very friendly and hospitable. I love the way I see you guys talking to each other. And um, I'm, I'm about as introverted as it gets. So that's saying something when I'm like, oh, this, I like this. People are talking to each other. Um, and I also feel like you have struck that unique blend of fidelity to the, the gospel, to scripture, and a willingness to follow the spirit into maybe uncharted territories. Um, and I just really appreciate that about you. So good job. Keep it up. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Um, so we did help plant a church about a decade ago now in Manhattan. And, you know, leading up to that, I don't know what you guys did as preparation for the launch of City Church, but when you're launching something new, you do things. You know, we, we didn't do a lot of, like, paid publicity type stuff, but there was some of that. And of course, we did a lot of like social media marketing and tried to encourage word of mouth. And we made sure everybody that was at all involved in our home groups knew about it and made sure everyone knew their part and everything was lined up. And it's like a big deal to launch something new. You really want to make the best first impression that you can. You only get one shot to start a new thing. This, This feeling, I'm sure we've all felt. I mean, I felt this every time I start a new job. 
when we moved back here, I took, so what I'm doing right now is uh, I teach math and science to fifth graders at a parochial school in Cincinnati. Oh, I just hear like a whoop for math back there. Is that, <laughs> I see you. <laughs> uh, I've like kind of gone back and forth between church ministry and education ministry over the last couple of decades, and uh, I'm teaching right now. But I've been teaching fifth grade math specifically. I've got years of experience doing it. But nevertheless, when I came to this school, I still felt that, like, I need to prove myself. You know, my kids need to do better on standardized testing than anybody else. I, the parents need to love the way that I'm interacting with them. Everything, my, my whole vibe in my classroom needs to be really good because partially for noble reasons, I want to do a good job and I want to represent God well. And partially for less noble reasons, I have learned that if you make a good first impression, people back off from you and kind of let you do your thing. Maybe you felt this in class, if college classes, or if you can think back to high school. I always did this. Like, and if you don't know this, here's a life hack right here. The first paper you turn in, make that thing amazing. Make that perfect. When you turn in an amazing paper, Professors are busy. They don't have time to read every word or grade things really strictly. And if you mark yourself out as an excellent student from the beginning, then they kind of like, sort of like, well, this is a kid has got it together, so I'm just going to sort of like let things slide by. I think if we were all honest, we'd have to admit that there's a certain degree of image management that's just kind of baked into life. You almost can't avoid it. I felt it preparing for today. Um, you know, I always get a little nervous when I'm getting ready to speak, but especially to a new crowd in a new place. And I felt extra nervous this week because, you know, if I have a track record with you guys and then I just totally bomb one time, that's one thing. But if I bomb the very first time that I ever get up here, that is something totally different. Whether it is a first date or a job interview or maybe it's your first time here at City Church, you, we have this feeling like I need to kind of put my best foot forward. And some of that is okay. Some of that is we should care what people think about us if you're emotionally healthy. You should care about that. And some of that is maybe less noble reasons. But whenever you start something new or launch something, there's this desire to make the best first impression that you can which is what's so strange about this passage, this moment in Jesus' life. So this was the launch of all launches. This moment when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist was the launch of his public ministry. And the Jewish people had been longing and preparing and anticipating this moment for millennia. Prophets had risen up to say that the Messiah was coming, the Christ was coming, the anointed one, the only begotten Son of God. And then in the months leading up to this unveiling, this untamed holy man, this stern speaker for God, John the Baptist, emerges from the wilderness and starts to preach at the banks of the Jordan River, and crowds gather to hear him. And he says, make way, get ready, because he's coming. At long last, the moment has arrived. He's coming. And this man was so powerful that people said, are you the Messiah? And he said, no, no, you don't understand. There's one coming after me who is so great that I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. I'm not even worthy to be this one's dresser, the one that's coming after me. And he's baptizing people in the Jordan River, getting them ready for the coming of the kingdom of God. And then the moment comes. Jesus comes to the banks to be baptized. And John the Baptist says, I cannot baptize you. I should be baptized by you. And then when Jesus is coming up out of the water, the Spirit of God descends in the form of a dove and lands on him. 
And then they hear the rumble of the Father's voice in the heavens. This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. What a launch. The crowds are gathered. And then, Jesus, well, He left. He went off in the wilderness, alone, for six weeks. This is strange behavior. This is a very weird way to launch your public ministry. It's very unusual. And if you read through the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, it was a part of a trend of just how he operated in the world. Jesus was the way of connection, the way of connection to the Father, wholeheartedly connected to the Father. Jesus launched his public ministry not by taking advantage of these gathered crowds and mobilizing them, but by getting off by himself spending time with the Father, clarifying His heart, facing the temptation of the adversary that challenged, is this identity true of you? Are you truly the Son of God? Being tempted by it. And that was the, the heart of that temptation before He went back out into His life. And if you look over the course of His life, He was constantly doing this. He, in the early days of His ministry, He did really strange things. Like, He would do a, a miracle and heal somebody or set somebody free from some dark spiritual force, and then he would tell them, don't tell anybody about this. It's like the opposite of what we would do. He, you know, he, he wouldn't say, like, make sure you like and retweet and subscribe and share it with your friends. He'd say, don't tell anybody about this, because he knew that if the word got out, everybody was going to be pressing in on him. He wouldn't be able to enter cities openly, and that's just what Scripture says. It says that he got so popular that he couldn't freely move about the city. So, Jesus was more focused on being effective than he was on being noticed. There's this one time where he's about to heal this guy's son, and his disciples couldn't heal the, the youth or kid, and there's a crowd, it says a crowd begins to gather, that Jesus noticed a crowd was beginning to gather. And so Jesus quickly heals the boy and then gets out of there. It's as if he tried to heal the boy before the crowd gathered, which is the opposite of what we would do. We would all we'd wait for the crowd to gather and go get your friends and then make a big show of it so the word got spread. But Jesus managed his heart. He didn't manage his image. At the beginning of this ministry, he got off to make sure that his heart was in the right place. Also, for Jesus, prayer was his first response, not his last resort which for me, it was so, it's so often my last resort. But if you look through Jesus' life, it says He was constantly getting away to pray, going off to lonely and solitary places to connect with His Father. This was a signature of His way of moving throughout the world. He pulled all-nighters in prayer. If you look through the Gospels, especially before He made any kind of major decisions, so the night before He picked His 12 disciples, He spent that whole night in prayer, or before He did anything challenging or difficult or painful. Like the night before he was arrested and tortured, he spent that whole night in prayer. Jesus, it was like his first response was, I need to get with my Father. I need to clarify my heart. I, my, my ministry needs to be fueled and founded and guided by my connection to my Father. And I think if the one and only begotten Son of God felt the need to maintain such a strong connection with this Father, then how much more me? How much more should I be depending on that? And who can deny the results? Who can deny the results? Single most influential man in history, no second place. 
His followers penned the documents of the New Testament, which is the greatest selling book in the history of the world, no second place, been translated into more languages than any other book in the history of the world, no second place. Literacy swept the globe ahead of the New Testament because Bible translators went into preliterate cultures and they designed a written language for them so that they could translate the Scripture into those languages. It's impossible to tease out the thread of Jesus from the last 2,000 years of history, especially Western culture. If you try to pull that thread out, the whole thing collapses. It, it's mind-boggling if you, if you try to even imagine the world today without the influence of this man, Jesus Christ. Think about the orphanages and the hospitals and the leper colonies. Think about the years that we date from his birth. Think about the billions of people who claim his name today. Most influential man in human history, and yet, it's weirder than that because he was a very ordinary man. He was an everyday man, son of a handyman, Grew up in Nazareth in the region of Galilee, this scripture tells us. Back, backwoods kind of town, backwater kind of place. They had an accent. That's how they recognized Peter around the fire on the night of Jesus' arrest. They said they heard his voice. They had an accent. They were kind of hillbillies. They, they were from the hills and the hollers. No pedigree, no title, never wrote a book, never organized a nonprofit. Spent almost all of his waking hours with 12 blue-collar teenagers, 20-somethings, most influential man in human history. And it gets even stranger because it's weird enough that this every man, because of his deep connection to the Father, became the most influential man in human history. That's weird. But he also followed the Father into abject failure. Abject failure. He, Jesus wasn't just successful. He knew when not to be successful. There's this um, psychological phenomenon that you may have heard of. It's called audience capture. It's something we've all felt. And audience capture is, you know, a, an influencer or a speaker or a political leader, they do influence their followers and the people that are voting for them or following them or whatever. But they're also influenced by their followers. And you've all felt this. If you've ever felt that subtle pressure like, oh, people like these kinds of posts, or people are more likely to retweet or share these kinds of posts, and it kind of consciously or unconsciously shapes how you interact with the world. Or if you've ever taken a post down because it got no interaction, I'm guilty, I've done this. If you've ever done these things, that's audience capture. And part of it is a good and natural thing. We should care about what people think. If, if everybody thinks a certain way, there is a likelihood that that's right. If six of your friends or neighbors all have the same problem with you, probably you're wrong. If you're not a psychopath, you should kind of care what people think, but not always. Not always. And so, while it's tempting to make success a proxy for God's will, it's very tempting because generally speaking, if you do things God's way, things do go better for you. But not always. So it's tempting to make success a proxy for God's will, but it's very, very dangerous. Because, you know, we like to think the leader shapes the crowd, but it goes both ways. We, we like to think, because it's easier to think this, it's more troubling to think the opposite, but we like to think Adolf Hitler, for example, 
was just evil. And he, he took a nation by the throat and led them down a dark path, and they were innocent in it. But it didn't work that way. He, he gave these big public lectures, and he learned by lecturing what gets a reaction. He learned how to push those buttons on the dark side of our nature, how to, how to excite the fear and the xenophobia and the hatred. And he learned by what got applause and what got people angry and what got people resentful and what got people to take steps. Hitler was also shaped by his crowds. He didn't just shape his crowds. And I think we could all think of modern examples when you see this dynamic at work. This is audience capture. Jesus was immune to audience capture immune to it. There were times when Jesus said things that were so hard to accept that everybody in the crowd left. And then he turned to his disciples and said, would you like to leave as well? There were times when Jesus said, where Jesus said things that were so offensive that they grabbed him by the clothes and dragged him off to a cliff to throw him off the cliffside. And Jesus wasn't just willing to follow the Father into seeming success. He was willing to follow him into abject failure. Who else is willing to do this? Years ago, when uh, I was working at Papa John's Pizza in Finneytown, which is where I met my wife um, many, many years ago, 25 years ago, so she was like negative two years old or something like that. Um, I had a buddy there, and an address came up in the system, and he asked me if I would go take the delivery for him. And I was like, what's going on with this? Is it a, you had a bad interaction there? Or in my mind, I was thinking, are you trying to dish a no-tipper off on me? Or what's going on here? And he said, oh, it's just a guy I know from high school, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to. And I was like, what? what? And he was like, you know, I'm, he's, he's done very well for himself, and I'm, I just don't want to. And I was like, oh, okay, I get it. I've certainly felt that. I think we've all felt that, like that shame of maybe I haven't done as well as I hoped that I would or especially when it comes to like thinking back to high school. So I took the delivery. But imagine, imagine if you were in this situation, and there are people in this situation, and in a room this size, maybe one of you has been in this situation where you just wrecked everything. I mean, you lost it all. You alienated every friend. You were homeless and half-naked and destitute. The shame, the people that had thought you had so much potential and promise, what they would feel towards you. Well, Jesus followed the Father into crucifixion. Crucifixion. And crucifixion wasn't just painful, although it was extremely painful. We get the English word excruciating from the word crucifixion. It wasn't just extremely painful, it was shameful. You weren't just dying a slow, miserable death. You were hoisted up on a pole in public, naked or half-naked, exposed to the world so they could judge you openly and comment on you and mock you and make fun of you and tell you how much you deserve it as you slowly die this miserable death. And it's exactly what people did. The soldiers spit on him. People said, I oh, saved others. Why can't he save himself? He wasn't just dying. It was the worst shame, the worst humiliation reserved for the worst criminals, the most treasonous, low-down criminals. This was the fate that Jesus followed the Father into. I think you could make a case that this is the worst thing that can happen to anybody. And that became the best thing that has ever happened for us. And that makes me wonder, how good might things be? How good might we make things? 
if we walked the way of connection as Jesus did. If we had that level of connection with the Father, if we focused on managing our hearts and not our image, if we started to make prayer our first response and not our last resort. Here are some of the things I think that we would see. I think that we would enjoy the deep connection that Jesus had with people. You know, his, his singular connection with the Father didn't lead him to be a recluse. On the contrary, he was more deeply connected with people than anyone else I can think of. You know, last week or two weeks ago, Chris talked about the encounter between Jesus and the woman at the well. This woman, very ordinary moment, she came out to draw water, and Jesus connected with her, with her so deeply that this became the, the life moment, her life moment. This was the life-changing moment for her, this everyday encounter. And sometime before that, a week or two before that, Caitlin uh, took us into that scripture where Jesus is dying and there's these two thieves dying on the cross beside them. And Jesus used his dying breaths to have this deep, eternity-changing connection with the other man that was dying beside him. And it makes me think about the, the man with leprosy that Jesus reached out and touched when no one else would touch the man with leprosy. Or the rich young ruler that came before Jesus and it says in scripture, I quote, Jesus looked at him and loved him. So I think if we would get as connected with the Father or even take a half a step in that direction, we would be more deeply connected to each other and we would certainly be more deeply connected to ourselves. Jesus was like the most balanced man who ever lived. He said things like, I don't say anything that the Father hasn't told me to say. And Scripture says things like, he didn't take the praise of men very seriously because he, quote, knew what was in a man. That is a centered life right there. Whether it was seemingly successful, the crowds gathered, or seemingly a failure, the crowds gathered screaming, crucify him, crucify him. He had that center. He knew who he was. And that was the essential temptation after his baptism. Satan, the adversary, the dark forces of the universe, came to him and said, are you really the Son of God? If you're really the Son of God, are you really the Son of God? Who are you really? That's what he was clarifying in his heart in that temptation. What would we be like if our lives were founded on the deep sense that I am the daughter of God? I am the Son of God. That's who I am. That's how I work my way through the world. You would be spending time with the one who knows you better than you know yourself. You'd be spending time with the one who knows how many days you have left in this world, who knows everything about you. The, the surrender of self that Scripture talks about is the surrender of the self-created self, to discover the self that God has for you, your true self. Jesus was the most truly, fully actualized individual that's ever walked on the globe. And lastly, although we could say a lot more, I, I do think that we would enjoy more moments of supernatural wisdom where we knew what to do if we would maintain this connection with the Father. And I wanted to close this talk with a personal illustration, but the problem is I almost always get this wrong. So I could only come up with illustrations where I blew it and didn't listen to God and then things didn't really go very well, or I did it on my own strength and then prayed as a last resort and that's good so far as it goes. It's better than nothing, but it's not as good as making it your first response. I came up with little things, but they weren't like sermon illustration worthy. So to find one, I had to go back a few years. Here's the scene. I'm in the sauna at the local YMCA. It's the size of a walk-in closet. It's dim. It's stiflingly hot. 
it's sweaty. I'm alone until the door opens and a, at least a 70-year-old woman comes in, much, probably much older than 70. And she comes in and she sits right beside me because it's a very small room. And it's just her and me alone in the hot, sweaty dark. So this wasn't like a high point in my life, but um, it was what it was. And then she turns to me and she says, this is her conversation opener. I don't think white people and black people should intermarry. And I was like, what? What? I mean, so many things went through my mind. First thing was like, do I look racist? Like, you were looking for someone to start this conversation with, and you were like, who? That guy. He's, he's down to... What? And also, what decade is this? I had to check my watch. Intermarry? Is this the 1880s? What's going... This was like five years ago that this happened to me at this Y. So... Instantly, I, of course, is like indignation, resentment, rage. I thought of all the things that I was going to say. I was going to go in on this woman, which in New York we go in on people. We don't go off on people. I know here you go off on people, but that's what I mean. I was about to go in on this woman. I had all my things lining up, and I was going to leave there feeling like I was one of the good ones, and I just ripped her down, and I was, I was like, you can't say crazy stuff. Not to me, you can't say stuff like that. But then I don't know why I paused this one time. Maybe it was something about the glint in her eye but I could see it was a trap. She wanted that. That's what she wanted. I don't know why. I don't know where it would have gone, but that's what she wanted. And it might have felt good for me to do that, but it wouldn't do any good. And I just paused and I said, is there anything I could say right now that would actually do any good? And I came up blanks. I could not think of a thing that I could say in response to this woman that would have any hope of doing any good. And so I don't know why I got it right this time, but I actually asked God. I said, God, what can I say to this woman? And I, what rose up in my mind was I just saw the faces of my, my white aunt who married a, my black uncle. They just rose up in my mind. And that was a little unusual because I'm not in the habit of thinking of them in terms of their ethnicity because it's just the family. So I don't think of them that way. But they rose up and I was like, oh, right. I can be like, hey, my, my aunt married a black guy. How dare you say it? I could do all that. But I was like, no, that's not it. That's not quite it. And so I asked God a second time. Now, this was all like five seconds. This wasn't like an hour. It was like five seconds. And I knew I couldn't say nothing. There's no way you can say nothing in a situation like that. But what do you say? So I asked God a second time. I was like, okay, what about that? And then I saw the faces of their kids, my cousins. And I had it. I had it. So she says... I don't think white people and black people should intermarry. What? My aunt married a black guy, and they have beautiful children. Are you saying that the world would be a better place if my cousins did not exist? And it was like all the air just sucked out of the room, all that hot, sweaty air. (laughs) And she said... Well, no. No, I'm not saying that. And now we're best friends. No, I've never seen her since then. (laughs) Never seen her since then. But I don't know. What do you think? I think maybe that made a difference. More than me going off. I don't know. Maybe she'll at least hesitate before she says that to the next person. I don't know. Gosh, I wish I would do that more often. Wouldn't it be amazing if we would do that more often? If we would all manage our hearts and not our image? If we would make prayer our first response and not our last resort? What would it be like if we heeded Jesus' words in John 15, verse 5? 
I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Let's pray. Lord, that is my prayer for myself and for everybody in this room and anyone within the sound of my voice. I pray that your Holy Spirit would lovingly draw us, encourage us, challenge us to talk to you, to be completely honest with you, to drop all pretense and open ourselves up to you. Whenever we feel doubtful or scared, uncertain, whenever we're starting something new or making a big decision or facing something difficult, I pray that you would draw us into a conversation with you. And I pray that there would just be a torrent of amazing little stories about how you provided. You gave us the words or the direction or the strength or the courage. We pray that with a great deal of faith because we pray it through the name of the one that that was completely connected with you and who gave his life to open the door for us to come fully into your presence with all of our baggage and past and shame and to be seen by you as he is, not because of anything that we've done, but because of what you've done for us, Jesus. Amen.